0: Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we um, pray that as we we come today and we we sing songs, we think deeply about Christ and who He is, His completed work. That our minds would be um, focused on eternity. We've got to pray that we would. Be aware of the fact that life is more than this immediate moment. That worship is more than just here and now in the singing of songs. That there is an end that we are all headed towards. And I pray that this moment will serve to prepare us for that day. got to pray that as we talk about the Gospel of Mark... That we would see Christ. That He would seem sweet to us. That we would see ourselves for who we are in light of Him. And that we would run after Him hard. With great hope and great assurance. As we walk in obedience. God, we know that we can't do this alone. We need Your Word. We need Your Spirit. So God, may we be faithful with Your Word. May Your Spirit... Uh, be at work in us to change us, to prepare us for that day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, now more than ever before, we live in an age without consequences, an age without repercussion, an age without penalty. I mean, you think about it. You can eat whatever you want. You can get as fat as possible. You just got to go pay for liposuction or a pill and you will lose weight. It's just done. We can overcome any bad choice that we have. I mean, think about this. We can pursue our sexual desires to no end because we've got contraception, we've got abortion to really minimize the risk, and it's basically cost-free. No child left behind, you know, the, the, the self-esteem movement guarantees that, that we won't leave kids behind. It doesn't matter whether they go through school and they get a degree, even though they never obey in class or they never even go to class or they can't even read their diploma when they're done, they're going to get out. Right, because it's a true—it's a horrible thing. We'll we'll mess with their psyche if we if we somehow tell them, "Hey, you've got to meet a certain standard in order to graduate." And I mean, let's face it—we've got so much technology in our hands. Like you, as students, man, you could you can fudge on reports. I mean, basically, you can do a quick Google search on whatever your topic is. You can get enough information just over the internet to be able to fudge your way through a through an assignment to get it done. And if you don't like your grade at the end, you just go crying to, to your teacher and, and you know she, she feels really bad for you and is afraid that she's going to damage your self-esteem and so she's going to either bump your grade up or she's going to give you extra credit assignments so that you can be over and done with and move on. I mean, heaven forbid you get an A- minus instead of an A. It will ruin your GPA forever and you'll never overcome it, right? You'll never be the same. It's crazy. The judicial system, too. I mean, now the judicial system is not here to protect the innocent. It's there to free the guilty and to help the foolish to make money. You know, I mean, how many times is McDonald's going to be sued because someone spills coffee or someone else got fat? You know, it's just crazy. The the courts are now there to, to, to free people that don't belong. I mean, the murderers are not the ones that should plead insanity now. It's the courts that should. We live in an age without consequence, an age where there is no repercussion, an age where there is no penalty. And you add to that this steep sense of entitlement that we all have, this unbridled ego, rampant individualism, and a world that is relatively free from any hardship, any suffering, any pain. The mortality rate is is unbelievably low. It's never been this low in the history of the world. And what you get is a bunch of people, a nation filled with people that are living as if this is their world and their God. You live in, in a nation where people think that, you know what, I ought to be able to determine my course of life in my convenience, in my pleasure, in my leisure, you name it, I will I will determine what I want my life to look like and... and I expect it to work out that way, regardless of of anyone or anything else. And as a result, people are less prone to think about eternity. We don't need to. We can take care of that. We got medicine for that. Less likely are they to consider the actions that they have, that they might have consequences, that there might, especially negative ones. And they're less knowledgeable in the nature and purposes of God. And then you add to that the fact that churches struggle with the same mentality. And so, they don't want to deal with it. Or they're afraid of offending. They're too afraid that they're going to mess your psyche and your self-esteem won't be the same if they happen to preach God's Word and speak into this issue. And so there's this even greater slip. There's this rapid falling into this mindset because God's heralds are avoiding unpleasant issues rather than speaking into this culture. No one wants to talk about these things. No one wants to faithfully proclaim God's Word. It's a lot easier just to focus on the music. It's a lot easier for us to just Come up and give lighthearted, encouraging, uplifting messages, you know, that really don't deal with with the stuff you're going through. But as long as you walk out of here with a good feeling, you'll be back next week and I can get my paycheck. And that's really what I'm looking for. It's sad. Are we sure that God's word is faithful and, and able and sufficient to speak into these issues? I'd say most people don't think so. That was for a day gone by, a, a former day, long ago. They, God doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know how to speak to us in our day, in our culture. Many people think that. Is it any surprise then? Is it any wonder that then why fewer and fewer people believe that there's a hell, and even if they do believe it in a hell, they, they, they don't agree on what it is? Is it any any surprise then that that people most people believe that they are good and that sin is just relegated to those worst of the worst people? It's the Adolf Hitlers of the world that God is going to punish, right? Everybody else is basically good. And are we not astonished when people know even or even care to know so little about God and his purposes and the way he's working in the world? You see, it all has its effect. Friends, we're here to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. We're here to talk about the Gospel, right? But let's face it, folks. The good news is not good news unless there's really bad news, right? And there is. Friends, life has consequences, right? Eternity is real. Sin is serious. But God is faithful, To preserve and to give assurance to those who walk in obedience. So, today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. It's page 845 in the Bibles that are there provided in your chairs. I encourage you to read along with me as I read. We're going to be talking about these issues this morning. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42, page 845 says, whoever, this is Jesus speaking, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot, if your sorry, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This passage talks about three of the least mentioned issues in church today. And I get the joy of talking about all three. Right? The reality of eternity, the severity of sin, and the assurance of God. Let's start with the first, the reality of eternity. Now this passage is a continuation of Jesus speaking to His disciples, teaching them about what it means to follow Him. Right. This is. I know that most of your Bibles have this subtitle right there that says "Temptation to Sin." That kind of breaks up verse 41 and 42. That's not inspired. That's not in the original Greek. Okay. That was supplied by, by some some scholars, some commentators to kind of help us to understand how to think thematically about different sections of the Bible. It's not inspired. It's not God given. And so we need to see that verses 41 and 42 come together. They're connected. It's one flow, it's one thought. If you look at verse 41, Jesus is focused on, he, he's telling the disciples, listen, blessed are, that he will bless those who bless his disciples because of him. And then in verse 42, he basically says, and he will curse those who curse his disciples, calling them, causing them to sin, Right? So you've got this whole blessing and curses thing going on that you see over and over and over throughout Scripture. I mean, it happens time and time again. We need to see those as one unit. The way in which somebody treats one of his believers, one of these little ones who believes in him, it's going to affect their outcome. Okay, so Jesus is talking about uh, the fact that sin is serious and eternity is real. Now, many today... Don't find, they find the idea of heaven and hell to be purely irrational. You know, what, what support, what, what empirical evidence do we have for such a thing? It was this, this fear of the afterlife seems to be unfounded. It seems to be absolutely foolish. I mean, what empirical evidence do we have besides the personal experience of some unreliable witness as to, you know, what they encountered or what they claim to have encountered? Do we have? I mean, we've got no proof. It's not like you can go and take a PKE meter reading or put on your ecto goggles and see the spiritual realm, right? You can't do it. So the, here, here you've got the spiritual, the, the, the spiritual realm at work. You know, things are happening, and we can't see it. We can't measure it. We can't quantify it. And so it leads people to question its very existence. Though I come back and I say to that, well, it seems to me there's a whole lot about you that can't be quantified, can there? You've got a lot of memories that we can't take measurement of. You have a lot of personal experiences that affect the way that you think. And those can't be measured in brainwaves. You've got all sorts of emotions that are coming into play. You've got a conscience that it's either attuned to the Word of God or it's not, but you have one and it tells you kind of right from wrong. It's not an infallible... Uh, guide but it's there, still there it's present you see we all have a soul we all have this immaterial being within us that basically you can't quantify you can't see it you can't measure it alright I mean brain activity is not the same thing what we have going on is a whole lot more than electronic impulses across the synapses of our brains there's more to you than that you have a soul you have a spirit alright But this skepticism, this doubt, is present even among many self-professed Christians. According to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, it says that only 59% of Americans believe in hell. 74%, though, believe in heaven. Right? The Barna Group, they did a similar study. They found a lot more closer. They they, they saw like 71% believed in hell, 76% believed in heaven. The only problem with the Barna Group study is that no one could agree on what hell was. right? They left too many options, so it affected the results. Is the idea of eternity really some myth that's concocted by irrational people to explain man's lust for life? Or uh, some feeble, naive attempt to give comfort to those who are facing death? Or those who are grieving the loss of someone they love to give them an eternal place that's really nice and joyous? Is, is it the unknown that we fear? It's like, what happens next? What happens when we die? Is that really what's, what's getting people? Or is there something more? Is the preacher in Ecclesiastes right when he says that eternity is bound up In the heart of man. The deep inside of man, in his very soul, he has an understanding of eternity. Well, let's face it, guys. If we are going to understand this, it's going to take a lot more than than science. It's going to take a lot more than empirical measurements to, to decide this. We have to look at something greater. Something that stands outside of the human experience. And that is God. We have to go to God. We have to go to his word. We have to ask his son. What do you think about this? What do you know to be true? What are you telling me? Well, Jesus here tells us that there are two ways to live. That there are two paths that you can take. One leads to heaven. It leads to eternal life in the kingdom of God. The other to everlasting hell. He affirms the preacher in Ecclesiastes that the soul of man is eternal, and that every soul will spend eternity in one of two places either heaven or either hell. Hell is described in the Bible as this place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. It's not that you go to sleep or that you you are annihilated, that you kind of cease to exist. You are conscious for all eternity. Under the wrath of God. This is not a pleasant place and it's there for all who are wicked. Now, we can't define that the way we would like to of saying, okay, it's the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world that are wicked. We have to look in terms of what God says. What God says is that all of those who have rebelled against the perfectly holy God, the God who created you, the God who sustains you, who gives you every breath that you take, the God who gave you your soul, those who have rebelled against them, those who have rejected Him, those who have tried to live their lives without Him, as if this is their world and they are God, they, without repenting of their sin and following after Christ, will experience the eternal wrath of God. We see it here in verse 42. When Jesus said that it's better for a huge millstone to be hung around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than to experience what's coming to you if you cause one of his followers, his believers, to stumble. Right? This is a this is a bad death in this day, okay? A millstone is this huge stone that was like swung around by beasts of burden like donkeys or oxen that was used to grind up grain. It was heavy. It weighed tons. To have that thing hanging around your neck and then to be thrown into the sea, a place of chaos, a place of torment, right? That's a bad death. And he said, hey, that is better than what's coming to you. He says in verse 43 that hell is an unquenchable fire. In verse 45, he adds that sinners will be thrown into Gehenna, into hell. But Gehenna in that time is a trash dump that's just outside the city of Jerusalem. Alright? Back in Israel's worst days, in the days of King Ahaz and King Manasseh, people would go out to Gehenna. There was a shrine, there was a temple, there was an, an altar there devoted to the false god Molech where they would sacrifice their children. It was... This symbol of rampant wickedness. And so when Israel cleaned up their act, they they destroyed the altar there, and they put their trash there to be burned. And they made sure that that fire continually kept going, that it always burnt over and over and over again. It never went out. It was always there burning continually as an everlasting fire to symbolize God's everlasting punishment for the wicked. And then in verse 47 and 48, Jesus says that sinners will be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here, Jesus quotes the last verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verse 42. And what's happening there in Isaiah 66 is that that it says that after God judges the world. Okay, so this is a day still yet to come, still yet to come for us. After God judges the world, He will restore His new heavens and His new earth. right? That God will eternally dwell with His people in His place there. And, and they will worship Him in His glory. And then verse 24 says, One of the ways in which they will worship God in His glory is that they shall go and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against Him. For the worm does not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. There's this continuing reality and reminder of God's just judgment against sin forever. And we will look upon that and we'll actually give glory to God for it. Hell is mentioned plenty of other passages as well. In Matthew 25, Jesus calls it an eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels, in which they will be punished. In Luke 16, He calls it a place of eternal torment. Jude calls it condemnation under eternal chains of gloomy darkness, a punishment of eternal fire. And not to mention all the detail that we could talk about in Revelation 14 and 19 and 20. I'm not going to get into that because there's so much there. And these are just a few of the passages in the Bible that speak of hell. Jesus actually speaks of hell more than he speaks of heaven. Now, friends, the question I have for you is how does this sit with you? I mean, how do you really feel about this, this idea of eternal punishment for the wicked? As much as we would like to think that death is the end, that that, uh, annihilation is it, Scripture is clear that hell is one of two possible eternal realities. It's forever. The consequences of our lives are eternal because God is eternal. It's based upon His character. Everything is either going to be done to His glory or it is not. But God can't annihilate the guilty because God cannot cease to be God. He cannot cease to be good. He cannot cease to be just. He cannot cease to be righteous. Alright? And so it's based upon His character. His nature requires that He uphold His justice according to His eternal character. So if God is real and God has spoken which we believe that he has then eternity is real. There's something more to this this near death experience than just a fear of the of the afterlife. A fear of the unknown, right? Or this this naive desire of trying to comfort one another. There's something more there. Eternity really is up, bound up in the heart of men. The other option besides hell that Jesus speaks of, praise God, is heaven. Right? Heaven is the place where God most fully makes known His presence in order to bless. Okay, To be in heaven is to be with God. It's to be reconciled to God. It's to see Him in His glory. It's to dwell in all eternity in His presence, experiencing the blessing that comes from His very nature. The Bible uses a lot of flowery symbolism to talk about heaven because really there's no words that can really describe how great God's glory, God's majesty and eternity with Him will be. Mansions and streets of gold simply cannot compare to what heaven is going to be like. In our passage this morning, Jesus describes it in verses 43 and 45 as life. As eternal life. Now, is there? have you ever considered the fact that though you may be physically alive, you don't have life? I think even as fallen creatures, we kind of understand that there's some sort of blessedness, there's some sort of glory, there's some sort of fulfillment, there's some sort of satisfaction, some sort of peace and hope that, that is elusive. But it's outside of our grasp. And, and we try to fill that with all sorts of things. But it never satisfies. Even with, if we get what we want, it never get, keep, it, and it never gives us what we, we are promised. And so that glory, that fulfillment, that hope, that satisfaction is just always, always misses. Like it's always so evasive. Maybe, maybe the reason you feel that way is because you haven't experienced eternal life. You haven't truly experienced eternal life. For others of you who are believers, maybe you haven't experienced it because you don't realize that you have eternal life right now. Friends, eternal life is not just the someday, when we die or when Jesus comes back, that we will experience then and there. It happens when God does a work in our heart to give us new spiritual life. It's called regeneration. It's being born again. When that happens to us, our eternal life begins then, at that moment. In part, but not yet fully. There are more, there's more that awaits, but we have that blessing. We have that hope. We have that glory. It is available to us now. And the question I have for you is, are you, are you just immersed in that idea? Do you think about it? Do you dwell upon it? Do you find comfort in it and hope and joy and glory and true satisfaction in the fact that you have eternal life right now? It's secure, it's yours. Or are you still living for other things? We need to think about eternity more. We do. In verse 47. Jesus calls heaven the kingdom of God. Vaughn Roberts, in his book, God's Big Picture, has a great, easy-to-remember definition of the kingdom of God. He says that the kingdom is God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Now, you notice how similar that was to how I defined heaven? It's not a coincidence, and I didn't write either of those definitions, by the way. But the kingdom has a king. And guess what? It's not you. The kingdom has a people who live under the rule and blessing of this king. But to have this kingdom, to experience this blessing, you must have this king. He must be yours. You must respond. Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here now. So repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. He says in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, whether we like it or not, eternity is real. We have to deal with it. You would do well to think deeply about it. Set aside just focusing your thoughts on the moment or the day or the week and think about eternity. There are only two ways to live. One leads to heaven and the other leads to hell. The question I have for you is which path are you on? Okay? The reality is we all start out on the ladder. Everyone begins on Jim's not in here the highway to hell. <laughs> so if we're to change paths, if we are if heaven is to be our eternity, then second, we must realize the severity of sin. You can't get there without it. Now most people are willing to concede to Romans Chapter 6, verse 23, that familiar passage that informs us that the wages of sin is death. Right? We'll all kind of agree on that. Most people are willing to grant the fact that, yeah, yeah I've sinned, and yeah, that's worthy of death. But they mean physical death. They don't mean eternal death. But what, Jesus, what, what, what Paul's talking about right there is eternal death. Because it's contrasted with the fact that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying here, you have two options. You have eternal life, or you have eternal death. That's what's coming to you. But let's face it, that doesn't seem fair to us, right? This is why when, the, when they take the statistics, you know, you've got 71% of people believe in heaven, but, but 59% of people believe in hell because, hey, it's not fair that God would punish us eternally for finite sins, right? It just seems mean of God. He's cruel. Why is he doing that? But we say that only because we fail to understand the infinite worth of God. We really saw God for who he is, we wouldn't say the same thing. If we really see ourselves in light of him, we'll know how bad our sin really, really is. Scripture is clear that God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly pure. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteousness. Righteous. He's perfectly good. Right? John says in, in 1 John 1 5 that, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. None. He can have nothing to do with it. And because God is infinite and eternal, one sin against an infinite and eternal God is worthy of an infinite and eternal offense. God can't simply overlook it. God can't simply just say, you know what, forget about it. It's not that big a deal. Because if he did that, he would not be God. He would cease to be God. He would cease to be perfect. He would cease to be holy. He would cease to be righteous. He would cease to be just. He would cease to be loving. If he didn't punish sin. One little sin is not really one little sin. There's no such thing as a small, insignificant sin. One little sin was enough to lead Jesus to the cross. Our offense against God led to the greatest offense of all mankind. The humiliating, sacrificing death of the eternal, infinite Son of God. He died for that. and So we can't just say, that's not a big deal. Oh, that's really not that bad. We have to look at it in terms of God. It killed His Son. He's going to care. That's not just something. That is everything. And neither can we claim ignorance on this. Let's face it, we want to claim ignorance on this, don't we? We don't want to see ourselves in light of God. We don't. It is crazy to think about it. I mean, but it's not enough for us to say, gosh, I don't think the consequence is fair because I didn't know how much my sin really cost. I mean, think about this. If you took something or you broke something and you were caught for it, are you any less responsible for the cost? Of, of, of replacing that thing that you took, that you that you stole, that you broke, right? Does the cost change because you didn't know how much it was worth? Well, no, it's clearly the cost is the same. mean somebody goes and they hand you the keys to a bright red, shiny car. You go take that car out for a joyride and wrap it around the tree. You know, you can't come back and say, "Hey, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize that it was a Ferrari." I, I, I tell you what, let me let me get my here here. You just take my Corolla and we'll call it even. That just doesn't work, does it? We'd like to think that, but it doesn't happen that way. It's not an even trade. The cost of the Ferrari doesn't change because of my ignorance. That debt has to be paid, either by you or by someone else. And so are you really going to take your chances with this? Are you really going to think that you're going to stand based upon your own sense of goodness, based upon your own uh, acts of charity or good works so you're going to think that you know what i'm basically good enough i think that i'll just kind of like give some lip service to jesus but still live for myself and just kind of go on this way and and then you know just kind of rely upon the mercy of god and he'll kind of let me in or are you going to make your calling and election sure I, I don't think it's worth the risk guys this is what jesus is saying it's not worth the risk Friends, we we will all stand before God. Every one of us, one day, will stand before God. We will have to give an account of our lives. And in that day, no one is going to point the finger at at God and say, you know what, you're not fair. No one is going to stand and behold the glory of God and say, you know what, I just don't think I'm that guilty. I I, I think I'm okay. Okay. No one is going to look upon the Lamb who was slain and say, you know what? I don't really think you're worth it. (laughs) And that day we'll see that our sin couldn't be more serious. And so are you going to take your chances? Or are you going to get serious about your sin? But praise God, there is hope for us. Praise God that it is not solely dependent upon us. Christ... And it, 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 it's really not. I mean, Christ died to pay the penalty that you and I cannot pay, right? He He being, being God is of infinite worth. And He being loving and humble took on flesh. He became a man. He lived a perfect life, the life that you and I, we cannot live. And He gave that life up to sacrifice Himself as a substitute to pay that infinite penalty for our sin. He did that freely. He did that lovingly. He did that graciously. And He offers hope for all who would repent of their sin and believe. Who would turn away from it and follow Him. Follow after Him. Trust in His promises. He rose three days to prove that God's wrath God's infinite wrath against sin has been satisfied and there is now hope of reconciliation. Heaven is a promise available to you. You don't have to experience eternal torment of hell if you would only repent and believe and follow after Him. Are you really going to just stand back and say, I'll kind of do that? Or is it going to change your life? Nothing could be more serious. Nothing could be more important. Nothing can be more valuable than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right. As I pray that you would see that today, and this is why we must deal with sin seriously—not only because of the reality of eternity and the consequence for those who do not repent of their sin. But even as followers of Christ, we want to be very concerned and take our sins seriously, lest we make light of the sacrifice of Christ. This is why Jesus says that we must be careful how we relate to one another, to other believers in Christ, that we need to be careful that we don't cause them to stumble. It is better for us to experience a millstone death, you know, sea hanging, than, than to to experience what was coming if we just lead our brothers and sisters to stumble, to fall away. This is why Jesus uses such hyperbolic language in verses 43 through 48. He said, listen, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear the stinking thing out. It is better for you to go into heaven as, as some sort of blind, lame guy who can never jump rope than it is to experience what you got coming to you if you don't. You do not want to deal with this. Now, now jesus is not teaching us here that our sinful desires come from various body parts like you know your eye literally causes you to sin and so you can just tear that out or you're you know you're going up you're kind of angry with with you know Quinn, and you decide to punch him in the face you're like dude my hand man this is my hand you know we can't do that right don't don't be like origen do you guys know about origen Origen, he's a well known second century Christian. You know, he he struggled with sexual lust all his life. He read this passage. He decided to go get a knife and castrated himself, hoping that that would remove this desire. If you keep reading, you realize it didn't work for him, and it's not going to work for you. Right? We know from elsewhere in Scripture that, that really sin comes from the heart. Again, not the physical heart, but the spiritual heart, our souls. Jesus said back in chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, that it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now notice that he, he, he mentions these sins, and he says they're evil. Jesus is looking at them in light of God. God defines what's evil, we don't. We can't just say, hey, evil and wickedness, that's for the really, really bad guys. Sin is just a really light, insignificant deal. No, there's no difference. Sin is evil. Sin is a perversion of good. Sin is wickedness. And all of it that goes without repentance and faith results in eternal wrath of God. nature The nature of sin is severe. The consequences of sin is severe. And so as followers of Jesus, we must deal with sin severely. Jesus is calling us to a radical amputation here. We must cut it off. As John Owen says, hey, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no two ways about it. It doesn't take a rest. It doesn't stop. We have to deal with it. Now, I don't see your daily walk, but I know most of you well enough. I certainly know my own heart. And I think I have a pretty good grasp on the heart of man. And I think it's safe to say that none of us takes this seriously enough. None of us deals with it as we should. We we often, we want to go, and we're willing to confess our sin, you know, we'll offer up a prayer to God. We might even go and tell another brother in Christ and say, hey, dude, I did it again, sorry bro. But as soon as we feel better, we run right back to it. Because we still love our sin, we don't hate our sin, we don't see our sin in the light of God's eyes. Right? We hate the consequences of our sin, we hate the guilt that we experience of our sin, but we do not hate our sin. We love our sin. What Christ is talking about here is a lot more than just offering up a quick prayer to God and saying, sorry God, and then kind of moving on with our day. He's telling us to war with it. To do battle against it. Friends, you may think that that the fight against sin is a losing battle. But we can gain victory over it. Jesus is not going to promise us what he won't give. Do you believe that? Honestly? Honestly? We're going to struggle with flesh, we're going to struggle with temptation, but we can gain triumph over our thoughts. We don't have to keep falling back into the same rut over and over and over again. If you have Christ, then you are not a slave to your sin. But to win, it takes effort, it takes sacrifice, it takes humility, it takes help. But there is hope. And guys, it doesn't It doesn't matter how big the sin is. There's a couple of guys that I talked to, and they were open and honest. They said, you know what, I I struggle with homosexual tendencies. And they've gone through much of their life defining themselves as that. This is what I am. That's what culture tells you. This is the way you are. And so they begin to define themselves by their sin. But I said, listen, this is no different then any guy's struggle with sexual temptation. It, it's manifested in a different way, but it's not different. All right, We still struggle with the same things. There's guys that are enslaved to pornography, and it's the same deal for them. They feel like they can't gain victory over it. But that's not true. We're not defined by that. If you have Christ, you are identified, you are defined by Christ. Not by your sin. You've got to let go of that. That's the first step in, in receiving hope and transformation. By the grace of God, He's doing amazing work in their lives and they have been freed from it and they're helping others to do the same. And praise God for that. We're not defined by that. We're not defined by your sin. So if you're sitting here and you're laboring and you're just feeling guilty as we're talking about this stuff over your sin, whatever it is, you're not defined by that. If you are in Christ, you are His. You are defined by Him. Seek Him. And seek help. There is hope. Friends, there's there's a lot that can be done. Just a a couple of things I want to tell you is that, listen, meditate deeply on the person and work of Jesus. Alright? Think about who He is and what He has done. And when He promises that He gave His life as a ransom for sin, that He died for your sin, that that's real. When He promises that He'll send His Holy Spirit to help you, To comfort you, to give you strength, not to do the work for you, but to work through you so that you can gain victory over it. Believe it. Friends, get involved with the community of faith. Alright? We have community groups here, and especially life transformation groups that are designed for you to gain victory over these things. As long as you come in and you're transparent about your life, as long as you're seeking help and you're, you're, you're sharing, as long as you guys are asking one another good questions and pointing one another back to the gospel, as long as you are, are helping one another to develop strategies, plans for change. So it's not just kind of left at this basic confession booth sort of repentance, but it's actually going a step further and turning away from it, you will see victory. You will grow. We have those available to you. And if you're sitting there today and you're struggling with a particular sin, man, I want to encourage you to come and talk to us. There are tons of resources out there to help. Tons and tons of resources. We want to help you. Talk to me. Talk to Jim. Talk to somebody in the church. All right? But let's deal with it. Okay? We've got to deal with our sin. To not deal with your sin is to treat it lightly as if it doesn't really matter. But even worse, as a follower of Christ, to not deal with your sin is to make light of Christ. And we don't want to do that. No one who recognizes the infinite worth of Christ is going to want to do that. As, As if His life or death was no consequence. As if He's not worthy of your life. We make a mockery of Jesus when we fail to deal with our sin. Followers of Christ become like Christ, like him in purity, and like him in obedience. This leads to the third point, the assurance of obedience. Now, verses forty nine and fifty are a bit cryptic. You know, it's it's difficult to understand exactly what Jesus means here. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt is lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <laughs> what? He uses salt like 12 different ways right there. <laughs> what do you do? You know? And so often, and so often what people do is they think about, okay, uh, all right, this is how I use salt, and this is how I use fire, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put that in, and I'm going to try to develop some principles or analogies to live by, okay? I need to, I need to, I need to taste Jesus, right? <laughs> I, need a, I need a little Jesus seasoning here, you know? As if that's what we need to do. Now, if we're going to understand this passage, we have to understand both of these illustrations together. We have to look at what does the Bible say about salt and fire? And where are they used in connection with one another? And If you do that, if you do a study of Scripture, you see that when salt and fire are used together, it's talking about sacrifices. Okay, He's drawing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. When one brought a grain offering to be burned or or a burnt offering to be sacrificed there on the altar, the priests would come and they would sprinkle salt on it. Passages like Exodus thirty thirty-five or Leviticus two thirteen or Numbers eighteen nineteen, Second Chronicles thirteen five, or or Ezekiel um, forty three, twenty four, they all talk about this, this act where the priest would come and they would sprinkle salt on the offering, and that became known as the covenant of salt. You see, what that was meant to symbolize, salt being a preservative and a purifier, that was used to symbolize God's covenant faithfulness to His people to preserve them and to purify that sacrifice for them. Even then, in that day, they recognized that this sacrifice that I am offering is insufficient for my sin. That I need something greater in order to be purified. They recognized even then that it wasn't really them who could preserve them, who could keep them in covenant faithfulness with God. It required God to act, God to work. And so the salt was a symbol of that. The covenant of salt was applied to it so that they would constantly be reminded, listen, it's not you offering the sacrifice that makes you holy. It is God who preserves you and purifies you. And so... When we come to Jesus' obscure message here, what Jesus is saying is that everyone, every believer will be preserved and purified by fire. Okay, God will use trials. God will use the cost of discipleship to purify His children. It is through trials and hardships in the midst of the temptations and deceits of the world that God is refining His children. But you have to be all in. Right? You can't just be partially sacrificed. Yes, this is going to be hard. Obedience to God will not come easy, but we can have confidence and we can have assurance because God is faithful. He still is fulfilling His promises that He did in this covenant of salt, both to preserve and to purify those who seek after Christ. This is an assurance to us as we walk in obedience because God is faithful to do this. But just because God is faithfully working through these trials, preserving us and purifying us, doesn't mean that we don't have personal responsibility. All right, We can't just let go and let God and expect Him to just kind of you know, magically change us and then we don't struggle with things anymore. No, He meant to work through us, not do it for us. We have to be careful that we do not lose our saltiness. The disciples of Christ are, like Paul says, to offer themselves as a living sacrifice. But this sacrifice must be totally consumed or it is worthless. There's no such thing as partial purity. All right? There's no such thing as professed purity. We have to be pure as He is pure. That is the goal. That's what we're seeking. To follow Christ, we must die to ourselves. We must seek after Him. We must run hard after Him. Even in the face of great trial, knowing that God is faithful. Otherwise, we are worthless salt that has lost its saltiness and it cannot be restored. And friends, this is more than some abstract idea. Okay? This is not just a concept, an illustration that we just leave as an illustration. This is meant to have very practical, tangible life effects. Notice what he says at the end of verse 50. He says, Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, that seems strange. Where does that come from? Well, it makes a lot of sense if you understand the context. If you read verses 33 through 41, what has just happened among these disciples? They've been arguing over who is the greatest. Right? They just uh, went on some jealous power trip about this unknown exorcist who, who's not one of them. And they, they, they go after they try to get him to stop because he's not one of them, right? They're they're clearly at war with one another, aren't they? But Jesus says, Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's an immediate situation. Having salt means that they needed to humbly deal with their sin by making peace with one another. You gotta deal with it. It's practical. You see, it's not enough for us to, to read about or think about or even see small displays of God's work of salting, of purifying, preserving things. It's not enough that we would profess to have salt or occasionally seek salt ourselves. Salt is good, it is necessary, but at the end of the day, we can have assurance when we, out of the abundance of God's grace working through us, have salt. Salt. When we recognize that God is preserving us, God is protecting us, God is providing for us, God is purifying us, and therefore we're walking in confidence of that, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of hostility, even in the face that this is hard and I love my sin, that we can give that up and we become salt. Right? God salts so that we become salt. But we have to respond. God's grace has consequences. It's meant to practically and actually change our lives. And when we act upon this work that God is doing in us, as we deal with our sin, we can have confidence that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We will work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We will toil and struggle with all the energy that He powerfully works within us. Because He who calls us is faithful. And He will surely do it. As God salts, we become salt. Friends, this doesn't just happen. This is not going to happen easily. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen half-heartedly. But by the grace of God, it happens. Jesus has called each of us to come and follow Him. But to do this, we must be aware of the reality and the consequences of, of our sin. That there is an eternity, and we must deal with our sin severely. But there is great assurance that comes from obedience, because God is faithful, both to preserve and to purify us through His grace that He has given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But we need to follow, okay? Let's pray together. Father, I, I, I pray just first off, repentantly, um, how often we fail to, to consider eternity. How often we fail to, to look deeply upon you and your wonder and the fact that you are without beginning, you are without end, you are so far above us, God, that, that we, we fail to grasp our sin in light of you. And so God, I pray that we would honestly and carefully look at ourselves. I pray that we would have confidence to respond in faith, knowing that it is not simply our work to merit heaven, but, but You are at work in us through Your Son, Jesus Christ, to to help us to, to persevere, to help us to be purified as we seek to live in light of eternity rather than for ourselves. But God, I pray that we would see that. Now, there are plenty of people in this room, and I don't know where they're at. I pray for them, that Your grace would be at work in them, that Your Word would be working through them, that this message would seek deep into their hearts and they wouldn't walk out of here and just focus on the day. pray that they would focus on eternity. God, help us, all of us, to deal seriously with our sin, to see it as You see it rather than how we see it. And God, we thank You for the way that You work in our lives continually, providing Your grace every day so that we can walk in confidence and obedience. And God, I pray that we would do that. Thank You so much for Christ through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.